The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. Hey everyone, this is your host Peter with the 12th Digest of this third volume covering Monday, September 18th through Friday, September 22nd, 2023. Movie Monday. October is around the corner as I record this and it got me thinking that I haven't finished the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise watch. One of the goals for this volume of... Uh, The Digest, this third volume, was to try to finish some things, you know, that have been on my to-do list for a while. So I did exactly that for this movie Monday. I am now done with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise movies. I watched Freddy vs. Jason, which came out in 2003. And I also watched the reboot in 2010 called A Nightmare on Elm Street. Went back to its original title. So like I did in some previous segments for this franchise, I'm just going to talk a little bit about them. I did not do a lot of research. A lot of this is just my emotional reaction to watching these movies. I have seen Freddy vs. Jason before. I have not seen A Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010 before. So uh, these are just, you know, some quick thoughts about these movies, and then I can finally be done with... Uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I'm not going to watch the TV show. There were some novels and some comics. I'm not going to read those. Um, And I know there's a documentary. I may want to watch that, but, you know, I want to move on, right? That's the point. Wipe things off my to-do list and carry on. So Freddy vs. Jason, uh, if you don't know the story to this, uh, it's been several years after the last um, Freddy movie, And he wakes up and he realizes he's forgotten because everybody in Springwood, they don't remember him anymore. And people are taking, you know, medications to repress dreams. Everybody's hiding the fact that there even was a Freddy Krueger in the town. So Freddy decides to wake Jason up to resurrect him and to stir up fear in the town in hopes that people will remember Freddy and that will empower Freddy to return. Obviously, it turns out that Jason is not so easily controlled by Freddy, and then that's what brings about the conflict between the two supernatural mass murderers. Um, So, Freddy vs. Jason was released August 15th of 2003. It is set after Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and also after Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. Uh, And it is the last film in each of those franchises before they both get rebooted. So Nightmare um, uh, Friday the 13th would get rebooted in 2009, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street would get rebooted in 2010. Obviously, there wasn't a lot that... um, (laughs) that was critical about this movie. It was played for laughs. You know, it was um, apparently was the highest grossing film out of both franchises, you know, but um, it doesn't hold up. And it also marks the last time that Robert Englund would play Freddy Krueger. 
they decided to go with a different actor for Jason Voorhees. That would be an actor named um, Ken Kurzinger. And there was supposed to be a sequel uh, with the Evil Dead franchise, but it was scrapped. And I think they there was a, a comic book called Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. Um, but, you know, this this basically put an end to everything that came prior to this crossover movie. General thoughts, I had a lot of fun with it, surprisingly. As I mentioned, I know I've seen it before. I know that it has some campy elements. Um, and, and no one really stands out in terms of the characters, in terms of the cast, right? You're really watching this for Freddy and for Jason. That's, that's what you want. Uh, it has a lot of computer graphics. Um, but at the end of it, I was like, okay, that was fun. Do I ever need to see it again? Maybe not. But, um, I, I found myself engaged throughout the movie in a silly way, right? I wasn't taking it too seriously. I do like the opening to the movie where they talk about Freddy's demise and they talk about his origin and he has a lot of great dialogue. Things like, the children have forgotten about me. Being dead is bad. Being forgotten is worse. You can even think of this in a metatextual level. Um, later on, he says, I've been away from my children for far too long. So he resurrects Jason. Uh, I actually wanted more to that. It was it was a, a, a cool sequence. And you get some flashbacks to his kills. I don't know if they're... I'm assuming they're from other movies as well. Um, so he gets resurrected. And he sends Jason to Springwood to, you know, to make, make things happen. Your main characters in this movie, you have Lori, played by Monica Kina, who was... Uh, Abby Morgan on Dawson's Creek. She was Rachel on Undeclared. Catherine Isabel as Gibb played Sarah Conroy in Smallville Season 3, Episode 4, entitled Slumber, which was also about someone terrorizing her dreams. Kelly Rowland is Kia. Yes, that Kelly Rowland of Destiny's Child. Jason Ritter as Will. He's the son of John Ritter. Lachlan Monroe as the Deputy. Uh, that is one of the only cops to believe uh, that believe the kids about Freddy, and that actor plays Betty's dad on Riverdale, and then there's even a character that is cut from the J, as in J and Silent Bob cloth, which was odd. He's a stoner. He wears a you know like a beanie hat. Like I was like, wait a minute, what? Why are you ripping off J from J and Silent Bob? So Jason is let loose in Springwood and on Elm Street, and through this, Freddy slowly starts to make his way back into dreams as he gains power, and he can do small things, but he can't quite kill just yet. The The hook that I really liked was that the adults have all but eliminated all the information and all the references to Freddy, and they talk about him in, in like disease language, that there was, you know, an outbreak and the kids don't know him. But once the name starts getting dropped and other people, they, they mention him, that's when his power starts to build. And that's what Jason is there for. Uh, and then there's a scene in the middle of a school hallway 
where everybody's just listening in on these characters talking about Freddy and how they're tormenting his dream. And this is where you're like, oh, okay, I can see how this is just going to add fuel for his return. Um, there are some other meta elements a little bit. So when Freddy sees that Jason is doing all this killing, he says, uh, well, he tries to kill one of the teens, but he doesn't have quite the power yet. So he's like, all right, I'll let Jason have some fun, some more fun. And it's almost like he's talking to the audience. That all leads to one of the big death scenes. There's this rave in the middle of a corn maze, and here comes Jason, and, and I'm thinking, okay, is Jason going to be too powerful? What's the hook that gets them to fight, right? Um, eventually, Freddy tries to kill one of the main characters, but Jason gets to her first, and that's what pisses Freddy off. Um, we get another sequence at a hospital, where they are trying to find drugs so they can't fall asleep. And the cop, that deputy cop, uh, his name is Stubbs, he's the one that connects it all the way back to Crystal Lake and the Crystal Lake kill killer. And we get Jason's origin going all the way back to the 50s, which, you know, if Friday the 13th, was that in the 70s, the first one? I don't remember. Um... I just looked it up. It goes back to, uh, the first movie was 1980. So his origin story goes back to the 50s, and one of the kids realizes, oh, you know, Freddy was killed by fire, Jason was killed by water, and they're going to use that maybe to try to defeat them. So in the hospital, Freddy manages to overtake the one character that is the J character, and he's going to stop Jason's rampage. And he tranks him, and then by doing that, Jason falls asleep. So they get round one, Freddy versus Jason. It's a battle in this in Freddy's world, basically. A battle of the minds or a battle in dreams. And the fight is ridiculous. You have Freddy, you know, basically, it's like almost like telekinesis, just bouncing Jason all over the place like a pinball uh, game. Um, we get a scene where Jason is afraid of water. I don't remember that at all, but I also haven't seen many of the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, and then we also get a scene where Freddy goes into Jason's memories. So while this is going on, the kids decide to take Jason's body to Crystal Lake, and they're going to come up with a plan to revive him, and hopefully, like all the other Nightmare movies, bring Freddy to our world or to their world so that maybe Jason can take him out on and have like home field advantage, right? So they get to Crystal Lake. That's what happens. We get round two. This time Freddy is in their world and Jason is getting, um, you know, the upper hand until there's this other sequence where Freddy goes back to winning it seems like it bounces back and forth. Like, Freddy wins, then Jason wins, then Freddy wins. Then we get the final um, confrontation where Freddy is just demolishing Jason, throws him in the water. Um, but then Jason reemerges and manages to kill Freddy with Freddy's own arm and his finger gloves and claws and, you know, drives it right through Freddy's heart. Meanwhile, the kids create this explosion. I think that's how um, that's how they manage to get rid of um, both of them initially, leading to that final fight, leading to Freddy being killed. 
and uh, the main actress, she throws Jason's machete into the water. And I was like, no, don't do that. Like, you're just, you know, you're just going to make him revive again. Sure enough, that's how the movie ends. Jason emerges. He has Freddy's head. Uh, but Freddy's Freddy winks to the camera, you know. So so it's almost an even matchup, you know, two for two. But I think Freddy actually comes out a little better uh, in these battles by the end. And then, of course, as I said, you know, it's not like any of them are really going to die. So it's fun. It was just a fun, silly movie. So then we get to Nightmare on Elm Street, the reboot in 2010. Michael Bay was a producer. Um, there are certain producers who had already worked on the Friday reboot a year earlier. We have Jackie Earl Haley as, uh, um, as Freddy for this reboot. You might know that actor as playing Rorschach in Watchmen, and I discovered for this episode that he also played Odin Quincannon in Preacher, which I didn't know that because I had stopped watching Preacher uh, because I just think that was a little bit of a mess. Uh, let's see, Rooney Mara plays the main character of Nancy. She, You might know her from Social Network. We have Katie Cassidy from Arrow. She plays one of the teens that gets killed early. Uh, Kyle Gallner is uh, the other sort of main character. He played Bart Allen on Smallville. He was also Cassidy on Veronica Mars. Clancy Brown is in this. And it was directed by Samuel Bauer, who before this was just someone who directed um, commercials and music videos. He directed Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, The Cranberries' Zombie, and for Green Day, American Idiot, and so many others. So this movie, um, this is a reboot of the original movie, and it does feature scenes and deaths and other sequences that are evocative of the original movie and maybe some other movies within the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. What they did with Freddy is um, they they kind of did what Freddy versus Jason did, where um, none of the kids remember anything about their um, past with Freddy. So you have all these kids, they're having dreams, all these teenagers, they're having dreams, people are getting killed, their parents are hiding things from them, and they realize there's some connection. They have some connection to Freddy, and then ultimately discover that they have a connection to each other, but they don't know why because no one is telling them. It turns out that they all knew each other in preschool. So when I read uh, a little bit about this movie, the creators are like, okay, we're making this movie during the internet age. So we had to make sure that the teens were really young when all this initial stuff happened. Otherwise, you know, they have the internet. They would learn about... Um, what happened in the past if if it wasn't far enough away, right? So so they all knew each other in preschool. Freddie was a gardener. Um, for a little bit of the movie, there's this notion that whatever happened at the preschool, the kids were making 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 it up. And Freddie felt like he was being accused of something that he didn't do. So he flees town. The parents go after him in the factory, just like the original movie. And they burn him up. Now, eventually it turns out, yes, he actually did do things to the kids, especially to Nancy. That was his favorite. Uh, Nancy and uh, the, the 
character, I guess his name is Quentin. That's the character played by the actor who played Bart Allen on Smallville. They go to the preschool, they find a secret room, they find drawings, they find pictures of Nancy, and they realize, oh, yeah, our parents were right. He really did do something to us. So that doubt, that little bit of doubt that they had for a little while that, you know, did Freddie actually do the things that the parents were saying that he did, it gave something to the movie to hang on to for a bit, right? Even though it turns out like you expected it would. So, um, you know, the demise of Freddie is more or less the same uh, once they figure this all out. They bring him into our world, they burn him, they slice him, they kill him. And and then you get to the end of the movie and it's like, no, of course, he's still alive. Apparently they wanted to make this a trilogy or at least have a sequel and that never came to be. Um, in terms of the movie itself, though, while I find that it's well made, you know, it looks good, it's comfortable in its transition from scene to scene, uh, some of the deaths are fine, the acting is fine, I feel like it lacks the oomph of the original. So, as I mentioned, the director, Samuel Bauer, he directed commercials and video games, which is interesting because, or not video games, videos, which is interesting because it is well-filmed. It looks good as a movie, but what is actually being shot is boring. Some of the actor performances are way too grounded. You know, I don't feel like there's much thought about staging during a scene. And especially with Freddy, I don't find his physical performance compelling at all. They almost wanted to make it too real, yet he is still in that red and green sweater. So, again, the framing of it all, the way it looks, the way it's lit, the shots, all of that is great. That is speaks that speaks to everything that the director um, can bring in terms of experience. But what about the emotionality and the acting? And, and I don't know, I just was like, I don't want it to be over the top and campy, but give me something, right? In, in the way that I was engaged with Freddy versus Jason, I was frustrated with this movie because it just didn't have any flair to it. So I'm, as I mentioned, there are callbacks to the first, to the original, Nancy in the bathtub, the way they kill Chris, just like they killed Tina in the original, the way that she pops up in a body bag, the ending, the death of the mother at the ending. I mean, all that's like a callback. But those moments were fine, but then everything else around it, I was like, mm, I'm not, I'm not attached to any of it. They decided to make Freddy's uh, disfigurement a little more realistic in the sense that if he's a burn victim, they wanted to emulate that without trying to totally go all in, or else it would be really. They thought it would be too off-putting for you know to go too real. Um, the special effects crew that worked on his makeup also worked on the CGI for Two-Face in the Dark Knight movie, and it looks fine. I mean, you know, I noticed that difference right away. His one-liners, though, his presence, it just, just I don't know, it just doesn't land, you know? He's too real. He's too much of a predator. There are some scenes and some moments where I was like, hmm, that's, yeah, that's not gonna, that's not working for me. Um, they even said they didn't want his lines to be cheesy. They wanted him to be darker, 
but I think that gives away some of the fun and we be we as viewers are repulsed by his actions, but we're not scared. So of the two, I would say that I had more fun with Freddy vs. Jason, even if the reboot looks better. Um, but I would much rather watch the original Nightmare or even Dream Warriors than I would the reboot, you know. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's, I finally get to wipe that franchise off my list. And as I mentioned, October is coming, so maybe I'll start another horror franchise. Um, people told me to stay away, stay away from Hellraiser. Uh, seeing Jason almost makes me want to watch the the Friday franchise, but they seem really formulaic. Um, I've been thinking about maybe watching Saw. Uh, I I should probably watch all the Halloween movies. So we'll see. We'll we'll see which one I pick. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I don't know if I, if I'll do that right away, but as I mentioned, it is, it is October coming up, so it would be fun to jump into some more horror. So we'll see. Timeline Trivia Tuesday, part two for September of 2023, taking a look back 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago. Going to give you some comic history and some comic book trivia here. Let's start 40 years ago, September of 1983. Marvel gave us the Assistant Editors Month. So in September, we start at the end of September, we started to get a few issues that had a stamp on it on the cover that said Assistant Editors Month. This was just something that they were doing, um, you know, as a goof because uh, Jim Shooter, this was his idea, and it was uh, directed mostly by Mike Carlin. The idea was that most of the editors were going out to San Diego Comic-Con at the time, so wouldn't it be fun if all of their assistant editors took over their titles for one month, and they could create something fun and silly and, uh, you know, just something that would create kind of an, an event for Marvel. So in September, we got Thing Number 7, Daredevil 202, Dazzler 30, New Mutants 11, X-Men Annual 7, and Conan the King 20, and we'll get a bunch more in October. Uh, I did read Thing 7 at the time. That's when he was fighting this one character that had, like, really big, powerful shoes, and then the Assistant Editor's Month part of it was that thing was reading this comic and saying wait a minute that guy i didn't have this drag out battle with him he came up to me he tried to kick me and i just bunked him away so then the thing goes to marvel studios and uh you know to all of the creators especially john byrne and john byrne was like well you know sometimes your life isn't all that interesting so we have to kind of you know create hyperbole and then the thing that pisses off the thing and he beats everybody up so that was that the X-Men Annual 7 featured the Impossible Man, uh, and this there was this like um, scavenger hunt, and he was collecting everything all around the Marvel Universe, but then he also collected like the Millennium Falcon and the Penny from the Batcave and other things. So of those um, comics, those were the only two that I read. Elsewhere in the Marvel Universe, for 40 years ago, we got Alpha Flight number 5, featuring the first appearance of Elizabeth to Youngman, the daughter of Shaman, 
who would grow up to become Talisman in later issues. Uncanny X-Men 176, John Romita Jr. takes over completely from Paul Smith. This is also the first appearance of Valerie Cooper, who will go on to be a, to be a major player in the X-Books. Power Man and Iron Fist hit 100 40 years ago under the writer Kurt Busiek. Batman 366, the first time that the pre-crisis Jason Todd would dye his hair and become Robin. He would wear the Robin costume to help Batman in a case against the Joker. This was by Doug Monk and Don Newton. Batman wasn't too happy that he did that. Uh, 40 years ago in September gave us the two-part crossover between New Teen Titans and Batman and the Outsiders. New Teen Titans 37, Batman and the Outsiders number 5 by Wolfman, Mike W. Barr, George Perez, Romeo Tangle. It was the New Teen Titans and the Outsiders versus the Fearsome Five. And this crossover made the connection that Geoforce of the Outsiders was the brother to Terra of the New Teen Titans, creating all kinds of confusion for Garfield Logan and the Titans. Um, we had already learned from Mike W. Barr that when he was creating the Outsiders, he created Geoforce this character that would be all about the Earth, and he ran into Marv Wolfman in, the, in, a, in a hallway, and Marv Wolfman said, oh, that's kind of cool, we have an Earth character as well, uh, over in our book, and this story might be apocryphal, or it was just silly, Mike W. Barr was like, he writes that he thought, hmm, maybe I can get rid of Marv Wolfman and George Perez, and, and this Terra character would never be, um, but then Marv Wolfman came up with the idea that, um, that they were related. And that's how we get those two characters. So your question comes from this crossover. The two teams eventually come together because a signal was sent out to both Terra and Geoforce from the woman who gave them their Earth abilities. Who was this female scientist? All right, 50 years ago, September of 1973, special Marvel edition 15 featuring the hands of Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. He has his first appearance 50 years ago by Steve Englehart, Jim Starlin, Al Milgram. Fu Manchu would be his father. So apparently Englehart and Starlin approached D.C., to adapt the Kung Fu television series into a comic book since uh, DC's parent company at the time owned the rights to the series. DC wasn't interested. They believed that the martial arts genre would fade over time. So they decided to go to Marvel, and that's where they came up with the idea of remixing it and creating Shang-Chi. And it was Roy Thomas that said, okay, well then let's use the Fu Manchu character. Uh, Marvel had already acquired the rights to that character, and that's how they came up with Shang-Chi. Kazar gets his own series again 50 years ago. Issue number one of only 20 issues, Lord of the Hidden Jungle. That would be by Mike Friedrich uh, writing and Paul Reinman on pencils for that first issue. Captain America 168 gave us the first appearance of yet another Baron Zemo, Baron Helmet, Helmet J. Zemo, the son of the original Zemo that fought Captain America in the war. 
this is the same Zemo that would eventually lead the Masters of Evil against the Avengers and who would also form the Thunderbolts. So your question in this story by Roy Thomas, Tony Isabella, and Sal Buscema, the new Baron Zemo went by a code name as he attempted to capture Captain America as revenge for his father. What was the code name that he used in this issue? And then 60 years ago, September of 1963, a ton of first appearances. We have Flash 140, the first appearance of Heat Wave, the Queen Bee making her first appearance in Justice League of America 23. Mystery in Space 87 gave us the Hawkman villain known as IQ. Journey into Mystery 98 gave us Cobra. Fantastic Four 21, the first appearance of Hatemonger. Avengers 2, the first appearance of the Space Phantom. X-Men 2, the first appearance of the Vanisher. Your question for 60 years ago comes from Tales of Suspense 48, right there on the cover, see the new Iron Man. This is when his red and gold armor shows up for the first time, the one that has that horned faceplate, all because he was battling a villain known as Mr. Dahl, who was able to control Iron Man in his yellow armor because he had a handheld doll replica. Very much like the Puppet Master, so that's probably why this Mr. Doll character didn't stick around for long. Uh, this new armor that Tony Stark build is now referred to as the MK2 armor. Your question for 60 years ago, this story was written by Stan Lee, but who was the artist that helped to design this new armor and was the penciler for this issue? All right, here are your answers. 40 years ago, the female scientist that connects uh, Geoforce and Terra of the Outsiders and the New Teen Titans, her name is Dr. Helga Jace. 50 years ago, in the story, in the Captain America story that introduces the new Baron Zemo, he went by the code name of Phoenix. That's right, originally called himself the Phoenix years before Jean Grey, and 60 years ago in uh, Tales of Suspense, we get to see the new MK2 armor as designed by Mr. Steve Ditko. All right, how did you do? Let me know. That's another Timeline Trivia Tuesday we can put to bed, and we will return next month for October. <laughs> New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of September 20th. Starting with, from Boom Studios, that intro music that you heard, setting the tone for the promo of Rare Flavors, one of six, by Ram V and Philippe Andrade. Discover the tantalizing tale of Ruben Baksh, a demonic Rakshasha with a down-to-earth dream of becoming the next Anthony Bourdain. To achieve his vision, Reuben enlists Mo, 
a filmmaker who has seen better days, to document the world-renowned cuisine of India and the people behind such glorious food. But little does Mo know that there's more to Reuben than meets the eye, and the mortals play a darker role in the show than they were prepared for. $4.99. That is the creative team behind the many deaths of Layla Starr. So this is their follow-up miniseries, and while it's uh, you know quite different from perhaps the the premise of Layla Star, I feel like that creative team definitely proved their worth on that miniseries, and I feel like this is a worthy follow-up, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, no doubt the the gentleman over at Boom Addiction probably already have a review up for this. Uh, so go look at Boom Addiction. I'm sure one of their episodes they will be covering rare flavors. From Marvel, Captain America number one. Yes, a new number one for Captain America. It didn't take too long. This is by J. Michael Straczynski, art by Jesus Saiz. What future awaits the man out of time? Decades ago, Steve Rogers changed the world forever. Now powerful and insidious forces are assembling to ensure he never does it again. Past, present, and future collide as the man out of time reckons with an existential threat determined to set the world on a darker path at any cost. $5.99. J. Michael Straczynski, returning, major Marvel character, this is definitely worth putting some eyes on. And uh, one of the interviews that I read about this series was about how Straczynski wanted to tap into the time before Steve Rogers became Captain America. I believe he said it was untapped potential. I mean, we have seen some of that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do on this book. Uh, from DC Black Label, we have Batman Gargoyle of Gotham, number one, $6.99 by Rafael Grampa with Matthias Lopez. In a, in a Gotham City where every day feels darker and more irredeemable than the last, Batman makes a definitive choice to kill off the Bruce Wayne identity for good and embrace the cow full time. But though he knows the streets of Gotham, Batman will soon come to find that he hardly knows himself. A serial killer is on the loose, and while the murder victims seem random at first, every clue draws Batman closer to the terrifying truth, that they are all connected not just to each other, but to him. Uh, Grandpa's artwork is stunning. It's not often that I point out yet another Batman miniseries or yet another Batman Black Label miniseries, which, you know, there seem to be a lot of, but I'm interested in, in, you know, what Raphael is going to do. From Dawn of DC, from DC Comics, we have Green Lantern War Journal number one by Philip Kennedy Johnson and artist Montos, $3.99, spinning out of the backup tales in the Green Lantern title. That has been going on, written by uh, Jeremy Adams. And of course, this week gives us Wonder Woman number one, Tom King, Danielle Sampierre, uh, and company. $4.99, a new direction for Diana, an eventual introduction of her daughter Trinity, 
and I, I've seen some early reviews. People are really talking this up. As I said before, I feel like this is the push that this title needs, that this character needs, uh, that really hasn't had in a long, 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 long time. And I don't just mean a good story. I mean a good story that retailers are going to back up. And you know they're going to want to sell this. Uh, when, when it gets the eventual hardcover, they're going to want to sell that as well. So fingers crossed uh, because the character certainly deserves it. And I'm looking forward to getting this in my DCBS shipment so I can actually read it. Uh, I, I am purchasing this title physically. Uh, so look for a review at some point in the near future. I know these Wednesday segments have been a little short lately, but knowing that some of the other segments, including the Danger Street segments that I've been doing, since they have been long, I need to try and be brief where I can. You know, I like to curate all five segments, so there's a nice balance. I don't really like when these digests go too far over the hour mark, you know? So that's why when I can, I can kind of keep the Wednesday segment short. Now, unless you tell me differently and you're like, nah, go go more than an hour. Go, you know, hour and a half is fine too. Um, unless I hear from you, you know, as I said, I try to keep these digests relatively digestible. Um, doesn't mean I'm, I'm not reading anything current, you know. I'd like to do some current reviews on these Wednesday segments. But as I mentioned, I'm just trying to keep things short. So let me know. All right. Those are your recommendations for the week of September 20th. Comics and theater, or should I say, manga and theater. So this segment is about Death Note, the musical. So it's no secret that when a manga gets popular, it goes through several uh, adaptations, right? It'll start as a manga, it'll go to anime, to live action series, or a movie, or a series of movies... Well, it seems like over the past number of years, manga has also been adapted for theater. And, you know, I'm not super well versed in Eastern comics. So, you know, whenever I do research on comic news, every now and then I come across an announcement or some kind of preview that another manga has been translated into some kind of live performance. Now, I said I've been noticing this for the past four, five, six years, but I feel like it's probably, you know, I, I'm sure there's a, a huge history to this that I'm just, you know, ignorant to, you know, I'm just not well-versed. But over the past couple of years, I have seen mention of Death Note the Musical, and I, I probably forgot about it. And then I was like, you know what? Let's pick that up again. Let's let's pick up this concept. And really the main reason why I wanted to focus on it is because the composer for Death Note the Musical is very well known in American theater. Now, maybe not to the general masses, but certainly 
people who are in the business. We know who this composer is. So Death Note the Musical, you know, again, not the first manga to be put to music, but uh, I wanted to cover it here and I wanted to share some thoughts um, uh, for you, for everybody out there. So let's start with what is Death Note, if you don't know, written by Sugumi Oba and illustrated by Takeshi Obata. It was serialized in uh, Weekly Shonen Jump from December 2003 to May 2006. It has uh, an anime to it. It has movies. It has video games. In fact, I think I started to watch the anime on Netflix sometime, you know, a number of years ago, but I never followed through on it. The story follows Light Yagami, a genius high school student who discovers a mysterious notebook called the Death Note, which belongs to a Shinigami demon otherworldly creature known as Ryuk. And this notebook grants the user the ability to kill anyone whose name is written in its pages. So then the story follows Light and his various attempts to use the Death Note to carry out this massive worldwide massacre of individuals that he thinks are immoral or, you know, criminal. He wants to create a crime-free society. He uses the code name of Kira. And then uh, along the way, there's obviously a task force, a police task force, that uh, tries to apprehend him. It's led by a detective known as L. We learn that there are people close to Light who are part of this task force. And then he gets, uh, you know, obviously he gets many followers. He gets another character who is infatuated with Kira. There's a second notebook that comes into play. And the manga just keeps going on and on and on and on. There are rules for the Death Note. You have to write a person's name and think of their face so it's the correct person. If there's no specified death, a person will die of a heart attack if the cause of death is written within 40 seconds, that means that that death will happen that way. And then if you write details of the death, uh, they should be written in the next 6 minutes and 40 seconds. So there are rules to what's going on. Death Note the Musical had its world premiere on April 6, 2015 in Tokyo, Japan. And then there was a follow-up uh, in, um, in Korea with a production in Korea, and, uh, you know, there have been other mountings of this musical. What I've been listening to is the concept album, the English concept album, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. The creative team behind the musical, your composer is Frank Wildhorn, with lyrics by Jack Murphy and book by Ivan Menchel. Now, as I mentioned, Frank Wildhorn might not be a name that you know. Um, you may not even know many of his musicals, but you know when you are in musical theater, we 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 know who Frank Wildhorn is. So he composed the music to Jekyll and Hyde, Civil War, also with Jack Murphy, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Dracula the Musical, Bonnie and Clyde, Wonderland, also with Murphy and others. He also wrote Where Do Broken Hearts Go for Whitney Houston, um, and has written other pop music as well. You might know Jekyll and Hyde if you've ever seen 
a, a televised recorded version of the musical. I think it was out of Las Vegas. I'm not sure. But it starred David Hasselhoff in a very controversial, um, not-so-good performance of Jekyll and Hyde. The same actor plays both characters. He is way over the top. I'll talk a little bit about that that phrase in a second. Um, he's also not very good. He's also not very good um, acting-wise. Um, Singing-wise, he has this very strange vibrato, and it almost sounds like a bleeding sound, uh, like a goat bleats, B-L-E-A-T, right? Um, it's not very good. But you may have seen it. You know, go look at some videos online. Go look up Jekyll and Hyde, David Hasselhoff, the transformation scene. And you'll you'll see what I mean. Now, using the phrase over the top is not far off for what I think about when I think of a Frank Wildhorn musical. You know, it's very bombastic. It's very dramatic. The characters come across sometimes as stock characters. There's a reason why I think he gravitates to gothic horror or uh, larger-than-life characters like Jekyll and Hyde, like Dracula, like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, there's an emotionality to it that is very fun to sing. I will say that. It is exhausting. I think his music is, is um, when you hear it, when you study it, it, it wipes out your system. It is not for the weak of, of instrument. You know, you need to be able to carry this music. Vocal ranges for characters are usually very demanding. They can go very low to very high. Usually, usually the men are high tenors or baritoners or, or full baritones. The women, there's usually always one that's more lyrical. And then there's another one who is a full belt, like just a full belt character. And to, to be a little shady, it seems like the women that he writes for those vo vocal ranges, the ones that are belters, he winds up marrying or writing a part for. He did it for one of the actresses in Jekyll and Hyde. He did it for one of the actresses in Bonnie and Clyde and also did it for, um, I want to say like a, a, an overseas version as well. And I think that's his current wife. And that's maybe why he's dipping into Eastern uh, theater and all that. I'm not sure. So anyway. Um, okay. So the musical, uh, Death Note, the musical, because it's a concert album, um, you know, there's no staging, I believe. It's just let's get into a recording studio and let's record our song so that then we can, I don't know, sell it or, or whatever, um, or just have a record of it. So on the concept album, you have playing light Yagami, Jeremy Jordan. You might know him as Win from Supergirl. He was also in uh, the original Newsies. Um, he was in the last five years, the movie version of that musical. So you might know who that is. Playing Ryuk is uh, an actor named Eric Anderson. The character of L is sang by Jared Spector. Uh, the character of, let's see, the other Shinigami is uh, Rem, played by Carrie Monolakos. The uh, woman who becomes infatuated with light, that is Misa. She's played by Adrian Warren. And then there's some other ones like um, 
Light's father is played by Michael Lanning. Uh, Sayu is played, his sister is played by Laura Osnes. The way I absorb this concept album is very similar to the way I used to listen to musical theater as a kid. You know, I used to have cassette tapes. I would listen to them. There was nothing to watch. There was no internet. Uh, occasionally, a musical would show up on PBS, or I would have to rely on local community theater, and which we did have a lot of, to go see productions to finally see, oh, okay, well, that's how that musical goes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I would just sit and listen to the cassette tape. If it had some liner notes, I could follow along with the lyrics. That's how I would get the story. Eventually, I would listen to CDs and do the same thing. And I would just think, look at the pictures, read the story or the lyrics, and just sometimes they would have a breakdown, like a synopsis, and just kind of go, okay, this is what I think this musical is uh, until I would actually see it. And that's probably why I would familiarize myself with a lot of those musicals that I was listening to in the 80s and 90s, um, I would memorize them almost instantly because I would just constantly listen to them. I do sort of, I, I kind of do that even to this day. If there's a new musical, I try to absorb it. Um, I don't do it as often. But I wanted to do that for this episode because, you know, as I mentioned at the top, comics and theater, manga and theater, it's a topic I've been talking about every now and then. Um... Certainly, the probably the most popular one, um, or the one that has the most success, is Fun Home, which is by Alison Bechdel, and then that became a musical, a very popular musical, uh, outside of things like Spider-Man the Musical and Superman the Musical, you know. Um, I read a news story that they were going to adapt Will Eisner's A Contract with God. I talked about... Um, well, I, I also talked about... Musicals that then get turned into comics, right? Like Phantom of the Opera, Carmen the Opera, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rocky Horror Picture Show. So this is just right there along those lines, right? Comics and theater, theater and comics, peanut butter and chocolate, you know. So um, so here's just a couple reactions. I'm going to play a few clips of some of the songs, starting with the song that you... Well, it wasn't really a song, but that ticking noise you heard that uh, intro this segment is from the overture and there's a little bit more to it but that ticking i i, I kind of like that because it's like you know when you go back to the rules of the death note it does evoke that you know you got 40 seconds to do this you got six minutes and 40 seconds to do that so i liked that i guess you know when i was going into listening to this soundtrack my biggest thing was okay first of all how are they going to translate a manga that has, you know, a, a large um, library of chapters into two acts, okay? What are the inspirations behind the music? What are the inspirations behind the lyrics? Did they pull things from the manga? I read maybe of two or three volumes of this. Um, I didn't do a lot of research in terms of, like, connecting the musical to the manga, but... If you are familiar with Death Note and you hear some of these snippets, you might say, oh yeah, okay, that sounds like dialogue that I've read before. But I wondered if the creators did that. And in terms of the music and especially the lyrics, did they think about this was going to be translated into other languages? Will the translation translation from English to whatever that language is, will it have the same meaning and 
will it fit the melody line and you know what changes will it have to make these are things you got to kind of think about so i don't know um how successful they are with that but you know so i'm just going to react to as i said the english version the concept album there might have been changes after that uh, you know, because this is just a concept album after all. So as I mentioned, we got the overture and the next thing we get is a song called Where's the Justice? This is where we meet Light y- Yagami uh, and he is, it's kind of like his I want song. So in musical theater, especially in Disney musicals, there's always a song the character will sing early on that more or less describes what it is they want. You know, uh, a whole new world from Aladdin, part of your world from, you know, um, Little Mermaid. Um, Belle has a song, uh, you know, they, they always uh, out there from Hunchback, right? Like they always have this song that is very emotional, very powerful, that they have something inside them that they want, they need, they want to express. That is what Where Is The Justice is because you, Light is expressing his frustrations to his classmates about how the justice system has been a complete failure and there should be more to it. Um, I did try to look at the first chapter of Death Note and, I mean, it really just kind of dives right into the story of him finding the Death Note. He's already Kira and then he talks to Ryuk and then they kind of flash back to what actually happened. So this motive... I don't know if it's necessarily in light right away in the ma- in the manga. Again, I haven't read it in a long time. Maybe it is something he talks about later. Uh, but let me just play a little bit of Where is the Justice? Show me what's right about the wrongs that we allow. Real people need to feel protected here and now. This whole damn system's broken way beyond repair. It's just law, not law and order. Not much good and seldom fair. Laws are made for everyone, we're treated all the same. Till the lawyer's tricks can fix the blame. What about the victims waiting for some justice? How can we turn away and say that's just the way things are? What about the families hiding in their houses? All of them afraid to walk the streets at night With all their doors locked tight Tell me where is the justice If there's any justice Even from that, you can kind of hear the tone, the temperament that this musical is taking The the orchestrations You can hear Jeremy Jordan voice as light talking to his teacher You can hear the emotionality behind it, right? It, It all sort of starts on that level and and either goes much higher or sometimes dips a little bit lower. But it's uh, fairly uniform as we go. Um, Then we get the next song, They're Only Human, which is both Ryuk and Rem talking about how pitiful pitiful humanity, uh, how how pitiful they can be. And uh, this is where we get the setup that he's going to drop the death note. All the years they could give you and me Only human after all So they give and we take Till their silly hearts break Looking down from above 
Again, a pretty good uh, example of the kind of music and and uh, the kind of voices and the kind of lyrics that you hear. Uh, I've listened to this probably two or three times before recording this, and I have to say there are some songs that do you know stick with you. Um, one of the songs is this next one, Hurricane. So uh, Light has found the notebook and he tests it out there's a song called change the world it's a quick song and then when he realizes that he has this power uh he 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 has another song that is highly charged highly emotional and uh that is hurricane The human stains in all their sins blown away. The hardest rains, the coldest winds are waiting for the hurricane. The human stains in all their sins blown away. The earth will shake, the sky will scream. This is definitely one of those moments where I always wonder, when am I going to get in trouble for this, uh, you know, playing that much music? But anyway, I am doing a review. That's part of the notion of why I'm doing the segment. So you can hear, really great song, really emotional, fun to sing, little repetitive in the lyrics when it gets to the hook, you know? Um, that's something that I, I feel like, uh, you know, as a director, I'm like, okay, what do you do? What What do you give the actor to do? in terms of stage movement or, or stage direction, if the lyrics just sort of keep repeating themselves. But, um, you know, I do, I do like that song a lot. Uh, from there, uh, we get a song called Kira. Uh, this is where Light and Ryuk meet and, and they talk about, you know, what, um, what the notebook is about and what, what he's doing and, you know, um, he's, Ryuk is, is amused that this big hero that everybody is like, oh, you know, we love what he's doing. He's actually just a, a teenager, you know? Um, and when light, this is part of the death note story as well. When light says to him, like, you know, I think it's some kind of dialogue where he's like, you know, you've given me this power to do all this. And Ryuk is like, eh, I was just bored, you know? Um, from there, there's a song called We All Need a Hero that introduces the character of Misa, who uh, she's, um, oh wait, it's a song called I'm Ready, and she wants to, she wants to be like an acolyte to Kira, and um, We All Need a Hero is actually sung by Light's sister, Sayu, who I don't think gets much play in the manga, but I wanted you to hear a little bit of this because it's a nice change in, in tone from the other songs so far. Whatever he can do, 
something must be done. Showing us we can do the same thing one by one. We all need a hero to rush in and try to save the day. We all need a hero for dragons yet to slay. We all need a hero to show us that I wanted to make sure I played something that also featured L, the character of L. This is called uh, The Game Begins, and it's really just sort of L's uh, methodologies, talking about you know what he want, what he has to do, what he what he needs to do, and uh, it's not terribly far off from some of the other music you've heard, but it it, it has a little bit of differences since the character is meant to be different. Calculus of a solution While changing stays the same The stronger mind and evolution Determine who wins the game I poke and prod to find a weakness Where the bend becomes the break And make the most of Kira's first mistake The game begins the same way I look for patterns on the screen Connecting bits of data Until I find out what they mean The game begins I definitely hear strains of Jekyll and Hyde in a lot of these songs that I've been playing. It's the other Frank Wildhorn musical that I'm most familiar with. Um, and every now and then I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's like straight from Jekyll and Hyde, which is fun. Um, it's something that, you know, most composers fall into the trap of it's Andrew Lloyd Webber is absolutely guilty of that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's kind of fun to hear that. Then we have a few more songs that wrap up act one, act two follows, some of the other Wildhorn formulas, like there's a duet between Misa and Rem. Um, there's a duet in Jekyll and Hyde uh, uh, about, with the two main female characters about Jekyll's eyes. And then in this song, it also is about eyes, which I thought was funny. Uh, the entire musical ends with a confrontation between Light and L and the ultimate, you know, resolution of it all. I don't want to give it away. I think... I, it's obviously, it's obviously not the end of the manga, I don't think, because I think the manga continues on even after what the musical is trying to show. Um, but obviously it has to be condensed because it's only two acts, you know, so. So there you go. Just a little taste of what this musical is. You can find it on YouTube. Just look up Death Note the Musical and uh, many of the playlists will pop up. Um, it was fun to go through. It was fun to fun to finally jump in and kind of go, let me listen to this thing and let me see what it's like. Um, I'm sure it probably feels like spectacle 
in many ways, right? If you're familiar with the manga and you're going to go see a live action version of it, uh, a theatrical performance of it, you know it's not going to cover everything. Um, you know it's going to be shorthand. But, I mean, as I mentioned before, there are several mangas that are getting translated into theater, live theater, musical theater, and I have to imagine it's it just adds to the popularity and it adds to why the culture of manga is so different than, um, you know, how we relate to American comics. You know, whenever I see a one to one, whenever I see somebody say, well, why can't American comics just be like manga? I just want to you just you're not taking the culture into account. Right. Our our entire culture is different. We grew up with comics way differently than the way uh, people grew up with Eastern comics, manga or manhwa or, you know, other versions of, or even European comics. It's just entirely different. Culturally, it's different. So, of course, it makes sense that they would want to translate their popular manga into other things, you know. Um, Speaking of, apparently... Uh, Frank Wildhorn worked on another manga, another manga turned musical uh, in Japan of 2021, and that manga was Fist of the North Star. Yeah. Now, I didn't go out and look look up that music. I didn't research that. I doubt I, I will, but I can't imagine how that's going to translate. But, um, okay. Comics and theater. You just never know what you're going to get. So hopefully you enjoyed that segment. And if you happen to listen to the soundtrack, let me know. Time again to cover another issue of Danger Street, Book 3 or Chapter 3, Metamorpho. Now, I haven't mentioned that when you open the cover, there are two title pages before you actually get into the contents of the comic. And one page gives you the credits, of course, Tom King, Jorge Fornes, Dave Stewart, Clayton Cowles, uh, and and anyone who provided an alternate cover. And then the second title page has the usual DC masthead uh, set against a background of images from whatever issue of first issue special that this issue correlates to. So we're in issue three. So those title pages reference and call back to first issue special, issue number three, featuring Metamorpho, which had art by his co-creator, Ramona Fraden. Uh, That template is used throughout all the issues to date, just like the alternate covers also reflect back to first issue special. So I wanted to point that out because I think that's kind of a, a cool design element. So Danger Street issue number three, here is your synopsis. Our story continues. Lady Cop, the princess, is searching online for blue DC characters. 
Metron has come to the new gods to tell them that due to the demise of Atlas, he has pierced, he has been able to pierce the great source wall and has gathered information. Atlas the Great is dead and his burden has been passed on. There is still one who might hold up the sky and they can be found on Earth. Starman tells Warlord that he has contacted the Green Team once again in hopes that they might provide info for his plan from last issue, the plan to resurrect the young boy that was mistakenly killed and to hopefully change the events that led up to Good Looks dying in issue number one. We see the other dingbats lounging and playing around in a pool, wondering how they're going to get their hands on a gun. Banana says, "Gun costs money. guns cost money, to which non-fat answers, oh, I got money. And then they are chased out of the pool by the person who actually owns it. Codename Assassin manages to avoid having the Commodore assassinated by Manhunter as they exit their very own building. Lady Cop goes back to the gas station attendant that gave her her first tip and has him go through all of the blue characters in the DC Universe until he recognizes Starman's picture. The guy then asks her, why did she show him all blue characters that are good guys? Highfather and Darkseid practically Rochambeau through names of people that they want to send to Earth, eventually landing on Orion. Jack Ryder, in his creeper form, gets a call from his agent that his show on the GTN network is now the number one show. The Commodore is uh, shining that diamond arm that's on his desk, all while getting an update from Codename Assassin about the assassination attempt, with Assassin assuring the boy that this will all end soon, to which Commodore responds, I know who you are, I know your true name, I'm not worried. In their superhero attire, Starman and Warlord go to see Cecil the Star Maker, one of the other green team members, that's all about Hollywood. In order for Cecil to give uh, them more information, he wants Warlord's sword, the sword of Shambhala. Nonfat is brought into Lady Cop's office for the pool incident earlier on in the issue and snoops around until he sees a picture of Lady Cop's potential suspect, Starman. And then we get our nine-panel grid final page. Nonfat has info. Jack Ryder continues to push the outsider disinformation. Codename Assassin is inspecting Manhunter's rifle. Manhunter is seen tending his wound from being shot in the arm by Codename Assassin. Cecil has the sword. Don't know what he's going to do with that. And Starman is looking at the Helmet of Fate. And then we see crazy-eyed Orion smiling. To be continued. Let me give you some general thoughts here. As I talked about those title pages, I do think it's a little odd that even though this chapter is entitled Metamorpho, he has very little to do with this entire issue. I mean, yes, all of this was made possible because Metamorpho sacrificed his diamond arm for payment for the original spell that they were going to use to bring Darkseid to Earth, but that's a light connection here, so it's not enough to put a strike against against the issue. I just wish 
the chapter titles would line up just like the alternate covers line up. Um, yeah, I, I, I want it to be a little more, a little more connectivity there. What I do like is in this issue, the characters are starting to mix more. We got Codename Assassin and Manhunter, two knights on the opposing sides, finally connecting. Lady Cop, she gets her lead towards Starman. Warlord and, and the Starman go to see Cecil of the Green Team. Non-Fat learns about Starman. It's an ensemble book that, uh, you know, you want these things to come together, and this is the issue where they're starting to do that. Um it definitely moves differently than a superhero story. And that's exactly what Tom King mentioned in one of the interviews. You know, some of these puzzle pieces, if this was an entirely different type of superhero story, they would be glossed over, right? You would just jump from big action sequence to maybe a character moment to another action sequence. But that's not that's not what this story is, right? Danger Street lives in those moments in between, which is why I like it. Uh, for a non-action issue, I think Fornes is really good at physicality with his characters, and that's what more than makes up for the story possibly not having quote-unquote action. But there is action because there's physicality, there's different moods that are expressed or emotions or... You know, Tom King, Jorge Vernez and company can do a lot with a silent page or with a turn of the head, you know. We got non-fat being annoyed at being brought in yet again in front of Lady Cop. Look at how awkward Warlord and Starman are sitting in their superhero garb as they talk to themselves or talk to uh, Cecil, you know. They're talking to this kid, basically, right? Um, we barely see the creeper in this issue, but when we do, take a look at the flagpole, right? The way it's presented in panel one, when he lands on it, and then panel three, uh, when he springs away from it. You know, there's movement there. There's there's thought out imagery that, you know, you could easily gloss over. I did read a review where someone said that this issue was too much exposition. Uh, you know, things like... Or, or talking about how points of view don't exactly mix well, right? You got a scene with the new gods. You got a confrontation between Codename Assassin and Manhunter. You got Orion beating up Kanto. And every section feels like it's being told differently or they're not jiving. And then I would just argue, like, that's the point, you know? It's in the premise that Tom King saw all these different characters and say said, okay, how can they all exist in the same story, but not at the sacrifice of what makes them unique and individual, right? You still want that. How can they exist in the same story and yet still be who they are, you know? Just because, I don't know, you've watched the millionth procedural show or, you know, sitcom or other drama show where the formula just never changes from episode to episode. That's not what this is. It can't be told the same way. It's the DC universe. It's a huge tapestry. And you do have gods, and you do have lady cops, and they shouldn't be told the same way, scene to scene, right? So I think I thought that review was, was odd. And they also, you know, by saying there's too much exposition? What? I do not think it means what you think it means, you know? All right, um, here's some thoughts about the overall story or the mystery. 
I'm probably most interested in this new god stuff. You know, what does it mean that the sky is falling? Why does it have the two leaders of the fourth world so eager to work together to stop it? You got Metron showing up in all of his Jack Kirby splash page goodness. You got the source wall throwing back to Kirby art or Simonson or even Perez, you know, it's it's really great. Between Mr. Miracle and the stuff that he's doing here in Danger Street, and obviously Tom King was tapped to collaborate on a possible New Gods movie, I just feel like he's itching to tell a larger fourth world story somewhere. It's good to see Codename Assassin do his thing in his in this issue, his powers, his ability to walk on air. He's such an enigmatic mix of ideas. In that scene, the Commodore is saying, is it the is it the outsiders? Are they coming to kill me? And I I wondered, is that just the Commodore holding up his charade, like in front of the assassin, right? He's trying to pin the blame on them. He's trying to have Jack Ryder out them, but does he really think it's the outsiders or does he believe that so much that they are coming to kill him that he does think it's the outsiders because of what we're going to learn later in their origin story uh, i love the line that the commodore gives about codename assassin's real name because we did get that backstory in the first issue special for codename assassin his real name is jonathan drew uh, but is this suggesting that maybe this is someone different? You know, is his origin and identity being tweaked for this story? There hasn't been any real major changes from the way these characters were presented in First Issue Special. We might get a few more later, but that's an intriguing notion of the Commodore knowing his real name. But I think we already know that, so we'll see where that goes. Going through all of the suspects that Lady Cop prints out, all of these blue heroes, the notion that the guest guest attendant uh, picks up on, that they are all heroes, makes me wonder what is King trying to suggest here, you know? Does it speak to something in Lady Cop's character that they are all heroes and not villains? Um, I'll talk more about that in a later issue when something else comes up with her. But this does answer the question to when does this story take place? Because we see Jaime Reyes as Blue Beetle. We also see Ted Cord. Um, we see Saint Walker, the Blue Lantern. So we are most likely in modern times at the very least. We got Orion coming in to do the dirty work for Highfather and Darkseid. Um, once he arrives on Earth, that brings us one step closer to having all the characters present from first issue special we just need the outsiders and then that final page again really loving that final page um it's a great narrative device that we get in this issue and all the issues we have lady cop and her assistant arguing about how she has used all the blue ink in the printer so it's not working and she asks why do they call her for help and the guy says just because you know what the problem is doesn't mean you know the solution to it. And that's dialogue that's overlaid on all the panels for all the other characters. And I thought, wow, what a theme for several of the plots as seen in this issue, as seen 
uh, in all three issues, in the final page, you know, you got Starman thinking he knows the solution to his problem by raising good looks, you know, by doing yet another spell. That can't be good. You got the new gods thinking that Orion is the best solution to their problem to finding out what's going on with Atlas on Earth. That can't be good because it's Orion, right? Even the dingbats thinking that the solution to to their vengeance or whatever is to go out and kill whoever killed their friend, but that can't end well either. So that final page, that narrative, the way the narration speaks to the larger story, uh, so good. Just so, so good. And And as I mentioned in that one review that I read, I was like, wow, you really missed the boat on all of that. Um, Starman being overeager about this new spell and whatever's going on with the sky is falling and the new gods, it makes me wonder, are those two things going to clash? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? So, uh, that's, it's still too early to tell on that, but we shall see. As I've been mentioning in these segments, uh, I'm looking at anything that I got right in terms of what were my speculations as I was reading first issue special about what Tom King could do with this story. So I have a few of them here that more or less uh, play out. I mentioned that line during the dingbat scene where they're like, hey, we need money for a gun. And Nonfat says, oh, I got money. Hold on to that line for a future issue, because that's a major speculation I had that I think is going to play out, but it doesn't come until a later issue. I talked about the Codename Assassin chapter and um, part of his origin story is because he wants revenge on the mob for killing his sister. So one of my speculations was, hey, could his sister be one of the characters that was killed in Lady Cop's origin. Now, there's no connection here in Danger Street. In fact, I don't think there's any connection so far in any of the issues that I've read up to issue eight, but that's something I'm looking to see if they're, if uh, if that's going to be connected. Um, in the scene with Warlord and Starman, Warlord has a line that says something like, we're not exactly people who need to be in society. That was absolutely a theme that I pointed out with many of the first issue special characters. They were all misfits. They were all freaks. They were all outcasts, outsiders, right? Um, yeah, I love that. I love that that notion is being picked up. And that's something that's very true with a lot of Tom King's books, but glad that that's making a play here. And then one thing with the Creeper, we didn't get to see him much, but his agent, he's talking to his agent, and his agent says when he's um, when he says that he's number one on the GTN network, but he could be number one all around the world, you're creeping up on the competition, he says. He says the word creeping. And I talked before, do we know who this agent is? Does the agent know that Ryder is Creeper? And then I thought, is his agent Cecil, the star maker? Could that be what this is? No. You know, there's a scene where there's a little bit of dialogue with Cecil and Warlord and Starman where he tells the two, go get an agent. And I was like, hmm, you know, that's another speculation I had. 
there apparently are people who are behind Green Team and the Dingbats when you read the text pages in First Issue Special. Um, and mostly every character has somebody that they can bounce off of, whether it's uh, um, a supporting cast, a love interest, whatever. So maybe the Green Team are more involved with all of the characters and all of their origin stories than we realized just yet. You know, like how does Cecil even know about the Sword of Shambhala? How does that information come out unless unless it's just standard DCU information? So many, many things to keep track of. Let's go to Easter eggs, especially Easter eggs that make me think about the Watchmen comic. Um, Atlas being uh, one of the other characters that is dead, but that they keep bringing this phrase back, the sky is falling, makes me think of the comedian is dead. Um, the coffee scene between Travis and, and Starman in this issue, Warlord and Starman, could be almost like the, the coffee conversation that Dan and Lori have when uh, she leaves Dr. Manhattan in issue three. There was um, a close-up of the coffee cup, just like there was in issue uh, three of Watchmen. I was like, oh, that's peculiar. Just the fact that Starman is blue and Dr. Manhattan is blue, right? You can you can make that connection as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, in that same scene, Warlord is uh, dealing with a bad back. I was like, yep, see, there you go. He's Night Owl. He's, he's out of shape. The assassin, when he goes up to, to the place where Manhunter tried to uh, assassinate the Commodore, it almost looks like Watchmen number one with Rorschach investigating the comedian's home. So the way that the... Um, Codename Assassin goes up, walks in the air, but then he goes through that like shattered window. I was like, oh, look at that. That's that's uh, that's very similar. You could even say the assassin assassination attempt on the Commodore could reflect the attempt on Adrian Veidt's life in issue five of Watchmen, where, um, you know, it was part of Rorschach's superhero killer conspiracy but it turned out to be that um adrian planted it himself you know he made that happen himself uh and then you have assassin in the end of that scene going hmm very much like rorschach going herm so those are your watchman connections again i i just want to put that disclaimer out that i have no idea if that's exactly what tom king is going for but i'm having fun um finding those parallels because some of them are obvious some of them i'm maybe forcing but some of them i'm like wait a minute come on that's just too good to be true and then let's talk about the cover by jorge fernez we have dark side on his chair just like in the new god scene uh you can really see the symbols on the chair and how they connect to that symbol in the danger street logo um you can even say that the a in danger street uh, which is um, a street sign for danger, is a little bit reflective of the nuclear warning sign on the cover to issue number three of Watchmen. And then you get the alternate cover featuring Metamorpho by her co-creator, Ramona Fraden, doing that image in her mid-90s. And when you look at the original pencil work, it has a very controlled line that is just amazing to see. And then Digital Inks and Colors are by Doc Shaner. 
there you go. That is your Danger Street uh, analysis for uh, issue number three. It's not quite a breakdown, right? But it's not just a review. Um, this most likely would have been um, breakdown episodes, you know? I would have pulled them out and had single issue, uh, single episodes just devoted to Danger Street. But, you know, I'm trying to catch up on the um, digests and um, I'm hitting all my notes, I have to say. I'm not leaving any notes behind, you know, a few here and there. But I, I'm hoping that it gives you a deeper appreciation of what's going on with this series. All right. So next digest, we will continue on with issue number four. Email me, peter at Go visit the Daily Rios website or Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me some book club recommendations, send me some promos, send me some talkback clips. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 636, for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. Talk to you soon. It's time to put this bad dog to sleep. For good!